0: Hi, everyone. You are listening to L&D Spotlight, a podcast about learning and development brought to you by Nifty Learning. I'm your host, Liz Stefan, and together we're here to learn about L&D. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I have with me today Ant Pew. Ant is a performance consultant and learning designer who spends his days desperately trying to convince clients to avoid converting PowerPoint slides into e-learning. At night, he masquerades as a writer, bombarding unsuspecting learning designers with bite-sized daily emails about creating high-value, high-impact training. Hi, Ant. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, Liz. Great to be here.
0: I'm one of the happy subscribers to your email newsletter, and I must say it's very eye-opening and makes you think at times. I want to start this episode by thanking you. You actually introduced me to the Serious E-Learning Manifesto. And this led me to reach out to Dr. Clark Quinn, one of the authors of The Learning Manifesto, who I recently recorded an episode with. It was really quite amazing and a cold shower in certain ways. And I want to actually link some of the ideas that he's proposing about the effectiveness of learning designers and learning professionals to some of your emails or the themes that you address in your newsletter. So you always argue the case for making learning interventions count, right? Moving away from the old model, not creating pretty slides, which I know is a term that you use in your emails. In one particular email, you say that the money we spend on completely useless training would give us a much higher return on our investment if we just addressed the specific problem very well. So I guess one of the problems in this space is that the money is still being spent on useless training. And my first reaction to this is, why aren't learning professionals just doing the right thing from the very beginning? So you are also saying you should create content for real-life situations, make the content relatable, contextualized, engaging, because it has meaning to the audience. Therefore, it's better retained. The learning is more effective. You can't make something for everybody in a company because that doesn't exist. There's no one-size-fits-all in learning design. but. This to me sounds like a lot of pressure, a lot of expectation from learning professionals. I actually will have a question on that particular type of pressure a bit later. I want to kick us off with something that you suggested, which is imposter syndrome in learning and development. Why are we talking about this in learning and development? What is imposter syndrome in L and D? What form does it take? Okay, good
1: question. So the way I see it, and this is coming mainly from my own experience, but also from having heard from many learning designers who contact me about their own situations. Let's uh, unpack imposter syndrome a little bit first. So imposter syndrome, the way I see it, is um, a feeling of maybe not being good enough, being an imposter, being um, somebody who's not qualified to do what they're doing. Now in L&D, the way I think that manifests very often is that many of us come into L&D through what, what you know i call it coming through the back door, but from the people I've spoke to in l d very few have come from a kind of traditional route I mean what is a traditional route it's difficult to quantify but um I would say a traditional route into a career is going to university to study that topic, maybe getting some kind of internship after you've graduated or doing some kind of like a sandwich degree where you practice that skill as part of your degree and then you move into a junior role and then you work your way up, you become more senior in that role. And so let's take an instructional designer, for example. I think very few instructional designers go to university, study instructional design, then get a job as an instructional designer or, or they do an internship and, and work their way up the ladder like that. I think most of us who are in these positions, we are probably you know, responsible for training maybe because we have some kind of expertise within the business and then the business wants us to share that expertise with others so we're asked to train others so we start doing that you know face-to-face coaching whatever it is um, in group classroom training Um, and then maybe you know we need to expand it beyond that so we need to create e-learning and that's the path that we go down we think we need to get our knowledge out to a wider audience and suddenly before we know it we are learning designers training designers and we feel like imposter syndrome and i know there's lots of resources and qualifications that we can do to supplement that but maybe imposter syndrome in L&D comes from that because we've never had that kind of formal degree in instructional design or any qualifications that's exactly what happened to me i was actually teaching the subject that i learned at university a piece of software that i became adept at i started teaching it to others fell in love with the process the art of training and, and teaching and kind of fell into e-learning in, in that way and sort of yeah always felt a little bit like I was making it up as I went along I was learning from people within the industry my assumption was that everybody else in the industry had it figured out all I need to do is follow along and I'd be able to figure it out and did that for a long long time before I realized that you know nobody really knew what they were doing so <laughs> it was a bit of a futile strategy so yeah I think that's probably for many people where the imposter syndrome comes from I think there's a lot of other facets to it as well
0: also from one of your emails and from your website I saw a very cool question that you were asking yourself during one of your projects so in working with one of your customers you had this realization that maybe you don't know everything that they expect you to know and you were starting to ask yourself a couple of questions one of them is what if they find out I'm learning on the job and I have two follow-up questions to that. One of them is, what if, actually answering that sort of rhetorical question. And the second one is, has anyone ever in your professional experience questioned you while discovering that you're learning on the job? Did that have any real consequences?
1: Well, I'll answer the second question first, because that's a quick answer. And I've never been questioned. So add to that. I've always been supported when I've been honest about it. So if I actually say to a client, you know, I've never done this before, unless they're recruiting you specifically for that task, which can happen, you know, obviously people can be recruited to build an e-learning course or to, uh, I think the example you're talking to is to um, design a learning community. You know, if somebody's hired you to do that, then I could imagine that there would be a situation where you turn around and say, I don't know how to do it. They'd be a bit annoyed, right? But to answer your first question, I think the reason it's not really an issue, it's just an issue that we make up in our minds, is because what you were talking about before when you referenced why the majority of training out there is ineffective, and in my opinion, it all comes down to a lack of needs analysis and performance consulting at the beginning of each project. It's a skill that I thought was a bit of a nice to have when I started. I didn't realize, you know, needs analysis, okay, that's just... Looking at people's slides and analyzing the content, didn't really understand what went into it. I didn't even know what performance consulting was. Consulting to me sounded like something that executives in smart suits did corporates and you know that was way way above anything that I could ever do. Subsequently, I've realized that consulting is simply just being skillful at asking the right questions, and it's something that we can all do and should all do, but it took me kind of a decade to realize that. Yeah, to go back to the point in question, I think when you undertake needs analysis at the beginning of a project and performance consulting, and so when you actually start asking questions about why are we doing this project in the first place, which in my opinion, every single project should begin with that question, because you know what is the point of creating training unless it's going to be effective? In my opinion, there's absolutely zero requirement for training. Nobody wants to do training. No business wants to spend their valuable money on training unless it's going to have a return on investment in some way, shape, or form. So if we're in agreement that the beginning of each project must begin with the question, why do we need training? Then the outcome of that conversation is we need training for X, Y, and Z. So we've got a business objective. This is the reason we need training. Right, well, if this is the business objective that we're aiming for, is it possible that there is an alternative solution to replace training or in addition to training? Are you open to the idea that training is not the only way to solve this problem? If your client is open to that conversation, which, you know, if they're actually interested in business results, they should be. If you're talking to a minion and they're, you know, just being asked to build an e-learning course and get it delivered, they probably won't care about business results. But if you're talking to the right person, the decision makers in a business, they will care. They don't want to spend their money on crap. So if we are having that conversation with the right person, and that right person is in agreement that we are trying to solve a business problem, and therefore the solution may be any number of things. It might be learning, but it might very well not be. It might be a one-page PDF that we send out as an attachment to everybody in the company. It might be a process that we laminate onto a mouse mat so that it's in front of them when they're at their desk using their computer i'm not going to go through all the solutions there could be literally i was chatting to somebody the other day and they said they were talking to a business consultant they proposed this really fancy system it was all to do with stopping a certain percentage of people being late to work in the morning and that was causing all these customer problems they solved the problem by paying for taxis to pick up the people who were starting the first shift from their house and taking them to work so they got them to work on time that was the solution and it was like you know a fraction of the cost of actually the kind of complex solution that they had recommended in the first place so the point is if we're in agreement that when we go into a project we have no idea what the solution will be which is totally normal that should be how a project starts even if the client comes to us and says we need e-learning we should be questioning that because they're self-diagnosing, right? If I go to the doctor and I say, oh, I've got a really tight chest, I've got a really sore chest here. And I say to the doctor, I'd like you to you know, remove my heart and replace my heart. If the doctor said, yep, jump up on the table and I'll whip it out, you would think they were a pretty crappy doctor, wouldn't you? So in the same vein, when a client comes to us and they say, right, I want an e-learning course, what we're doing really most of the time is we're saying, yeah, okay, give me a slides. I'll go and build it. What we should really be doing is asking the question, why do we want the training? So if we're in agreement that asking that question is the right thing to do, opening a can of worms, the outcome of which may be any number of a million solutions, one of which might be learning, It might very well be learning, but I'm sure it's more targeted and specific than the 187 slides that client's given us. There is always going to be a level of imposter syndrome there because I have no idea what solution is. So I'm putting myself into a situation as the consultant, as the learning designer, as the instructional designer, whatever my role is in this conversation. I'm putting myself into a situation where I can't know what the solution is. I can't possibly know what the solution is because we haven't had the conversation. We haven't done any needs analysis to understand what the problem is. We haven't done any interviewing of subject matter experts and interviewing of learners to understand what they're struggling with until we do that we can't possibly specify what the solution is going to be that's why especially in the last couple of years for me i've felt a lot more imposter syndrome than i did in the previous few years because in the previous few years i was just pumping out the crappy click and read e-learning modules and you know getting paid very handsomely for it felt horrible doing it but i was like well you know at least my business is up and running but since I've started practicing asking these more important questions and actually questioning what's being asked of me, it's thrown me into a situation where I've felt that imposter syndrome and you know, maybe I don't have the answers. And so going back to your question from 15 minutes ago, I apologize that this is so long-winded, but um, going back to your original question, I think if you go into this as a business partner and say, look, I don't know what the solution is going to be. It's definitely not this e-learning that you've just asked for. Obviously, we wouldn't say that. It may well be. but..." If we're going into this as a partnership, we'll work through this together. We'll figure it out. We'll find out what the solution is. If the solution is something that I've never done before, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to say, look, I've never done this before, but I feel confident I can figure it out. I'm a professional. I've solved problems before. I I can figure this out. Or it may be at that point you say, look, we do need this thing, this solution, and I'm not the right person to deliver it. At that point, maybe we can bring in a specialist to do that, and I can move on to a project where I can add more value. So. I know that that was a bit of a long-winded way of answering, but hopefully that kind of capsulated my thinking on that.
0: I'm very much of the same opinion as you. I actually recorded another episode specifically on the topic that L&D is not always the solution because it's so painfully obvious sometimes that just because the status quo is that you go to the LND team to ask for training... So many times, problems are uh, attempted to be solved with training, and some of them have nothing to do with that. They have to do with the organization, with management, with budgeting, with processes, resources, other things that LND m- maybe shouldn't even be involved in. So, I, I fully agree with what you're saying. As for the trial and error story that you're telling me about, I know, again, reading through your newsletter, I know that it took you, I guess, about a decade to find your groove. You have an email that's called "Finding Your Groove," and while this has happened, and because you used to be the kind of person who turned PowerPoints into e learnings uh, into pretty slides, I guess you were saying something along the lines of the fact that you've amassed some sort of value debt because your job as an L and D professional is to bring value and to basically help solve the problem, not make it worse or or nothing at all. And you are now confident that you started paying this value back because now being a performance consultant, focusing on the problem, doing this initial analysis, this value is being paid back. I kind of have a question on that. Does the entire industry have a value debt? Just the entire L&D space, do they have a value debt To their learners, to the employees of the world who have been going through these excruciating training sessions and long e-learning modules, not actually learning anything, wasting their time, missing the chance to do something more productive?
1: Easy answer, yes. I mean, we don't need to feel guilty about it. It's not like L&D owes people. I mean, they don't owe them anything. It's business, it's life, it's what happens, you know? But um, if you think about um, typical training solution, when we combine the amount of money and time that uh, a typical client and whether they're you know recruiting freelancers or an external agency or whether they're working with an internal team, if you think about the amount of time and money that's invested in the training solution, and then we add on top of that the amount of time and energy spent on the employees or the the seat time, essentially, I guess you would call it, the amount of time spent on that. Add those two things together. And then on top of that, you've got to remember the reputational damage that's been caused as well. So for every single person that goes through a crappy 25-minute e-learning module where they learn absolutely nothing and they're just clicking the next button whilst they're watching a YouTube video or whatever they're doing, their perception of training has deteriorated so the next time their the manager says would you like to go on this training course or would you like to do this optionally learning their mind's going to go straight back to that last experience and they're going to think well why the hell would i do that the last experience was horrendous this organization doesn't value high quality training it just values click and read or tick the box training so yeah it's it's very difficult to measure that metric you know it's more of an opportunity cost i guess but when you add all those things together I would imagine that 99% of training that is currently being delivered, those dollar values added together are less than the return on investment that the training solution actually delivered. And therefore, again, think about how many e-learning courses are out there being delivered, how many training courses, how many virtual workshops. If all of these are accumulating debt, then yes, obviously, the industry is massively in debt. But having said all that, I think we can turn it around because I think it doesn't take a huge percentage of people to start doing things right. I think by creating an effective solution, it's not just necessarily the positive relationship to the negative, it's exponentially more valuable. So I think you know we can create solutions that are hundreds of times more effective than how ineffective they were, if that makes sense. So I, I don't think it's going to take much to tip the scales in the right direction. It certainly doesn't require everyone to get it and to be doing it right. It requires a small percentage because once that status quo starts shifting, think of it a bit like um, a ship sailing in the ocean. It's a very, very difficult process to turn it round. right? You can't just quickly turn left when you've got that much metal going in one direction. But very, very slowly, just by making small incremental improvements and changing the direction slowly, I think we can turn this ship round. I think that's starting now because these kind of conversations are happening more and more often. But there's a huge weight of the status quo behind us that's kind of forcing us off in the wrong direction. It will take time and it will take patience and perseverance, but uh, I do believe we can get there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I agree. I like the turning of the ship parallel. It makes perfect sense. And if you force it too hard from the beginning, if you shock it or if you try to, you know, pull the rudder too fast, you might have some people fall off the boat or you might have the boat flip over entirely. So yeah, I uh yeah.
1: There's an interesting device. Ships are steered obviously by what's called a rudder. Rudders are just these huge pieces of metal, right? But there's no mechanism on earth that is strong enough to turn a rudder against the weight of the ocean so there's this little device on the back of a rudder called a trim tab which is attached to the rudder it's almost like a rudder's rudder if that makes sense the point of the trim tab is that in order to redirect the rudder to a different position the trim tab moves slightly and that enables the whole rudder to start moving it's just like on a on the wings of an airplane you've probably seen the little things that move up and down It's a bit like that, I guess. And the point is that if we relate that back to L&D, it just needs a small percentage of people to start doing things the right way for the whole industry to start doing things the right way because it will create enough of an impact for people to take notice and to start realizing that there's a better way of doing things. So that's the kind of analogy I've been thinking about when it comes to this stuff.
0: I think I got it. I'm going to Google this to make sure that I fully understand the example, but I think I understand what you're saying one of the questions that it raises in my mind is two questions, actually. One of them is about role specialization in L&D, which I want to save for later. But right now, what I want to ask is, and maybe this also contributes to the imposter syndrome that L&D people have. Not everybody in L&D knows how to do that initial consultative thing, right? To ask the right questions or even have all the skills or all the awareness or understanding of the industry that their company operates in to think about the fact that the problem may not be learning related. And again, I found this in one of your emails from the newsletter. You're saying, with enough analysis, the optimal training solution for any performance need can be identified. The many potential solutions you identify through analysis will require many skills, some of which you may not yet have as an L&D professional. Hence, the deficit. The difference between your current skills and the optimal solutions that those performance needs may require. And I want us to talk a little bit about this sort of skill gap for learning and development professionals. How do you better yourself? What's the catch here? How do you become more effective at doing that analysis and at understanding what the solutions are?
1: I should start off by saying that I don't believe everyone should, because, and this goes on to your comment about specialization, I believe that in order to deliver a successful solution, in most cases, you need more than one person to, first of all, analyze the problem. Secondly, you've got to identify an appropriate solution. Then you've got to go away and design it, deliver it, build it, implement it, evaluate it, all the rest of it. And I believe that expecting one person to do all of that is very ambitious. There are people out there who do it, obviously. There are one-man bands, but I believe they're the exception to the rule rather than the norm. And especially for people who are just entering the industry, when they go onto a job website and they look at the job requirements and they see the list of needs analysis instructional design video editing rapid authoring software development lms implementation lms administration you know they see this laundry list of things that they're supposed to be able to do obviously that creates some imposter syndrome because people think well i can't possibly apply for this job unless i've got all these skills or it puts them in a situation where they apply for it but they go into it in a kind of an apologetic manner where they're like oh yeah, I'm probably not going to be able to do all this stuff, but I'll I'll give it a go. And it puts you into a negative mindset even before you got started. So if we think about the companies that are putting these job adverts up, it's not their fault. They believe that one person can do the whole thing. They've spotted an opportunity in their business to deliver training. They believe that by recruiting one person, they can dip their toe in the water. They can try it out. They can get them to build some e-learning. They can deliver it within the business. They can license an LMS. And yeah, they believe that they can go away and see some results. And usually what happens or what I've seen happen is that company feels quite demoralized. They've spent $200,000 in the first year on the wages of a, an L&D employee. They've licensed an the LMS, they've invested in Articulate Storyline, they've built some courses, delivered it to some staff. They've got some happy smile sheets back from the staff saying, yeah, we really enjoyed the course. It was very engaging. The drag and drops are really interesting, and the Jeopardy-inspired quiz at the end was really exciting. But they look at it from a kind of bottom-line perspective, and they think, "Well, hang on a minute. We've just spent two hundred thousand dollars. Where's the return on investment?" And the poor instructional designer sitting there saying, "Well, I delivered all these courses that you asked me to deliver, and there's absolutely zero proof that the L and D strategy that they've implemented has actually delivered any return on investment." So they're left in a situation at that point where they're like, "Well, either we..." double down and we actually bring on another instructional designer because that's what our current L&D person is saying they need. They need more people to help them because they're struggling. You know, what usually happens is what I call turd polishing. So they go down the path of, okay, we need to start doing animated videos or, you know, we need a new LMS. Our LMS is too clunky and old, or we need to add narration, e-learning, or they'll come up with a whole laundry list of what are essentially tactics To try and make their current training offering better, when in fact it's the strategy that's flawed in the first place. And if they actually could find somebody who has that performance consulting background or the needs analysis background to identify what the problems in the business actually are and identify suitable solutions rather than jumping in two footed with the training, I think that they would be much better placed. So, to kind of circle back to your original question, I mean, that deficit. Exists because we're expecting people to be able to do everything. You know, we're expected to hire people who can do everything. And what inevitably happens is people focus on the solutions, just like the doctor's analogy we talked about before. We go to the doctors. We have in our head what the solution is going to be. He's probably going to give me some antacids, or he's probably going to do a triple heart bypass. We're fixated on solutions, but when we actually take a step back and we think about the problems, that's when we can really make sure that the solutions we come up with are actually going to hit the spot I don't think everybody should be performance consultants I think it's a very difficult skill to master I think it's something that comes with a lot of courage resilience practice patience are all things that I talk about quite a lot because I just from my own experience know that it doesn't happen first time the day I finished reading Map It by Kathy Moore I put that book down and I was like wow I'm going to change the world tomorrow my training is going to be so incredible i'm gonna never have to you know deliver a crappy project again and six months later i was still banging my head against the wall thinking why is this not working still figuring it out every day every time i work on this stuff i learn something new but i think it's a process and i don't think anyone's going to start off with that so i understand why people do start with picking up storyline and building an e learning course because it's the quickest most Tangible thing people can do to show that they 've got some kind of skill set, but I think if we really strip things back and we stop expecting these instructional designers to learn everything, and what inevitably happens is they get overwhelmed because they have to learn all these instructional design frameworks and all these rapid authoring tools they have to learn how to write scripts and storyboards, and they have to learn how to design animated explainer videos and they just and that was what my life was like for a decade. It was like bombarded with all these things. I felt insecure because I didn 't know how to do all of these things and. If only I could just do all these things, suddenly I would be a perfect instructional designer and my life would be complete. I didn't realize that it was this missing piece of the jigsaw at the beginning of each project, which is so much more important than the other pieces in the jigsaw. But I just saw it as another something else to learn, you know, needs analysis. And God, it sounds so boring. Needs analysis, that sounds like I'm going to be looking at spreadsheets and databases. And oh God, I'd much rather go away and just design a pretty interaction in storyline and practice explainer videos that was far more appealing yeah i don't know if that answered your question because i've gone off on a tangent but i feel like the answer to the question is not everyone should learn it but if i could give one piece of advice don't necessarily take it as gospel that you have to do what everybody else is doing and learn the intricacies of articulate storyline don't learn all the instructional design frameworks and do all this stuff i think if you start at the beginning with some really basic need analysis skills understanding problems asking questions, figuring out the relationship between designing experiences and designing performance support resources and and focusing on what that entails. And just ignore the noise from the industry really of all the latest trends and gimmicks and things that you should learn. And when you focus on the problems that are in front of you and how you solve those, I think quite quickly you could build up a pretty successful career.
0: Yeah, again, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Is it fair to say that it's sometimes easier to just dive into articulate or some some content creation tool rather than having to deal with the analysis part, which means interacting with other people, listening, capturing their problem?
1: For me, I'm an introvert, so I spent a long time doing that. I was much happier just putting my headphones on and designing e-learning courses because I could use my creativity. I was learning new skills. I was like, wow, you know, I can actually build something that somebody could click through. But for me, it got to a point where, after six, seven years of doing that and thinking to myself, what am I actually contributing to society? You know, when I'm lying on my deathbed and my kids are sitting there saying, Grandad, what did you actually leave on this planet? And I think, well, thousands of hours of people clicking through my courses and not remembering anything. I was like, that's not particularly something I'm overly excited about contributing to the earth. And I call that the icky feeling of realizing things like, would I actually want to take this training myself? No, not at all. (laughs) You know, that that kind of feeling. And a lot of people are happy to create that type of training and they sleep at night and they can look themselves in the mirror and that's fine. But for me, I wanted something more. I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to do something. I think the change for me actually was when I had kids and I was like, my kids are going to have to get a job and sit through this type of crappy learning. I don't want my kids to go through this. And it really made me start thinking in longer terms about what I want to contribute to humanity and so I started thinking a bit more carefully about it and that's when I realized I've got to start learning this and I've got to start taking responsibility for the bigger picture here and my email about that's called pulling up my big boy pants but it was it was the moment when I was right either I can sit in my cubicle and design e-learning for the next 20 years and get a pretty good salary for it and probably get some e-learning awards, and get some kind of badges on my website to say I'm, I'm a great e-learning designer, or I can pull up my big boy pants and I can actually try and do something that I feel is really going to positively impact humanity. So it sounds grandiose, but you know, that's kind of my drive and my mission, I guess.
0: To me, honestly, it sounds very commonsensical. I mean, I think it's an exam of honesty towards oneself, I think, maybe. Uh, now I'm preaching I think everybody should ask themselves a question once in a while. Why am I doing this? Is this serving any purpose? Am I doing the right thing? Is the contribution I'm making to the world truly a contribution or am I just wasting someone else's time? (laughs) But to avoid going into the philosophical part of this conversation, I want to circle back a little bit, unless you want to say something?
1: All I was going to say, I mean, I love the philosophical part of the conversation, so uh, I could talk for hours about that. But all I was going to say is, to your point, and it's not just relating to L&D and your career at all, and I think it's very important to apply this in all areas of your life, but it all comes down to awareness. And I found that through practicing a lot of mindfulness, and so going down that path of kind of being a bit more aware of my own behaviors and my own conditioned thinking, I think when you start recognizing... Being aware of what you're doing on a moment-by-moment moment basis and why you're doing the things you're doing day-to-day, day. again, you can relate this to l and but you can also relate this to your life in a broader perspective. I think that's the moment when you can start making changes because until that moment in time, you're just a hamster on a wheel, something like that. You're basically just going through that process, right? You're just going through the motions of life. Until you take a step back and until you have that awareness, it takes a certain degree of maturity to get to that point. And I'm not saying it's not an age thing or an experience thing. I think it's just a kind of almost like self-actualization, I guess, that kind of recognition of where you are in life, of what you're doing. So, yeah, a bit philosophical.
0: I absolutely agree. I mean, just the thought of wasting your own time on this planet and then on top of that, maybe contributing to the waste of other people's time. I think that's a pretty nasty thing to be doing, I guess. And I think... Everybody ought to question a little bit what they're doing. Every once in a while, just voluntarily take a cold shower. See if you're going in the right direction. If you feel that you are, or if you're not ready to have that conversation with yourself, that's fine. You can't force growth on people. But I think it's useful to do that sort of self-check-in every once in a while and ask yourself if you're doing the right thing for the right reasons. So now circling back to this whole conversation about what kind of skills an L&D professional should have and the many hats that this role sort of wears or, or has to wear just because of the expectation of the outside world. I was thinking about something, maybe this imposter syndrome isn't just internal, it's also sort of pushed on the L&D professional just like a form of pressure from the industry just because... There's such a high expectation, as you were saying earlier, that these people need to wear so many hats and do so many things at least decently well so that the purpose of the job can be served. I was thinking about the similar sort of problem that sales and marketing had for a very long time. And now when you read job descriptions for salespeople or marketing people, it's not like the salesperson does it all. You have lead generation, you have closers, you have people who write the proposals and so on for marketing, we actually had this conversation with someone. We naively thought that I'll just go hire a marketing person. I don't even know the job title and they'll just do everything for us. And they came back and asked us, but what do you want? Do you want SEO? Do you want content? Do you want social media management? Do you want automation? Do you want to look at the funnel? And I realized that I didn't even know which questions to ask the consultant so that they can help me. And to make this parallel with the learning and development consultant or performance consultant or someone in L&D who has this responsibility towards a population of learners i guess the L&D person should know very well how to do that initial analysis and sort of help the person coming with the problem to ask themselves questions about the problem and together to sort of riff off each other and figure out the best approach that actually leads to results not to hours of e-learning
1: yeah that comparison is perfect the comparison i was thinking of when you started talking about that is i think people think about learning and development as being a skill it's not a skill to me it's an industry or it's a vocation i guess i'm, I'm not even sure the right word i'm using but it's a bit like saying business is a skill business isn't a skill it's <laughs> you know you, you can't be good at business i don't think i think you can be good at the Individual components, or some of the individual components that contribute to a successful business. But yeah, it's exactly the same. And I feel like LD is 20, 30, 40 years behind things like marketing when it comes to that. And the expectation for one person to do it all, just as you said, you know, you, you go out there and try and hire a marketer, you're going to fall flat on your face because unless you know the problem you're trying to solve, how do you know what you're going to hire? What are you trying to achieve? Do you need more customers? Do you need to get more brand exposure? Do you need to expand to new regions? I mean, the goals for marketing are numerous, right? So identifying what your goals are will dictate what type of solution you need. Do you need search engine optimization? Do you need Facebook ads? Do you need a new website? Do you need to launch a podcast? Those are all tactics. Those are the marketing tactics. But until you've figured out your strategy, you can't possibly choose what tactics to use. So the same is applicable to L and D. Until we've decided what our strategy is, and we can't possibly decide what tactics we need, i.e., do we need e learning? Do we need face-to-face training? Do we need PDFs? Do we need a new intranet? Do we need a learning community? There are thousands of tactics that we could employ, but until we've identified the strategy, we don't know. And so that does need to come from somebody with that consulting expertise. So I would much rather see companies hire somebody with that performance consulting expertise, like a learning consultant who works internally and then can bring in the instructional designer on a project-by-project basis rather than hiring an instructional designer and just starting to build training.
0: So if I were to try to summarize our conversation today, I feel that we've touched on a couple of very important, sometimes painful aspects of the work, or not painful, but let's call them growing pains, right? I think, in my opinion, the way I'm seeing it, every L&D professional should start every project or before the project. I think a good sort of analysis or self-check is healthy to just think about the thing that you're about to do, about to build, about to create. Do I want to create something that's impactful, that actually solves the problem to the best of my ability and my contribution, or am I completely sure that I want to create a PowerPoint or any learning course? I think this sort of question is very commonsensical. Just how how am I going to add to this situation and make it better? How am I going to contribute to solving the problem? And I want to summarize some of the points that we went through and see if I've understood it correctly. So I guess. Obviously, the L&D role comes with a lot of responsibility and there is such a thing as imposter syndrome in l and and d professionals aren't always coming from an educational background that has anything to do with adult learning. Very often, they're former SMEs. And I know that there's an expectation that if you're an SME, you're great at doing something very well, then you must be great at sharing your knowledge and teaching others, which is a painfully inaccurate expectation. It's rarely the case in reality. The most, I guess, helpful thing that a learning professional could do is to understand how to do that initial analysis, because that's how you understand what the problem is. You may even guide the person coming to you with the problem to understand their situation better, and you together could create a solution that is much more impactful. So far, so good?
1: Yes, with one caveat that, and I probably didn't make this clear earlier, but whilst An L&D project needs to have that level of analysis at the beginning. There will be L&D professionals who will never do that type of work and should never do that part of the work because, you know, I work with incredible instructional designers who are amazing at adding some kind of story around what we're trying to build or e-learning developers who are incredible at using the different functionality to build e-learning or video designers, or there's a whole array of talents. That are needed to implement a solution. If that's your passion and your skill is doing that, there's no expectation that you should be doing this need analysis. But the awareness piece that you're talking about, people need to be aware that they're part of a process. And unless that first part of the process is implemented, what they're going to create is not going to have an impact. So whether it's them that does it or somebody else that does it, just be aware that if you're an instructional designer and you have no desire, no appetite to do the analysis at the beginning of a project, that's absolutely fine. But just be aware that it needs to be done whether you're doing it or not. So yeah, I just wanted to clarify that.
0: Yeah, yeah, very good point. I agree. I guess it's close to impossible to expect one person to be an L&D one-man band to do everything so well that they can tackle every single aspect of the process from the analysis to the creation, to the delivery, to the evaluation of the impact, to the measurement, to everything. So yeah, I agree. I guess you're arguing the case for effective teamwork in learning and development or in learning and development consultancy in a way. Yeah, I agree. I guess it does fall a bit on the shoulders of the L&D professional to push back when what is requested of them is not what they are either good at or they want to do or are even interested in doing, right? I'll say why I'm thinking that. I think a lot of L&D professionals don't know how to say no because the expectation of the, just the unspoken rule in the industry is that if you're in L&D, you probably know how to do everything. No one is even questioning whether everybody is good at everything all the time. It's more like, Sure, L&Ds know how to speak to people, create content, deliver training, facilitate, do analytics, everything because they are just so, you know, super, super people. But I guess it does fall a little bit on the shoulders of the L&D professional to push back and not, not as a sort of resistance or anything, just push back. Honestly, this is not something I'm good at or. Can we work together with someone to do the analysis or can someone design this? I'd rather do the analysis myself, but I'm not good at designing the experience. So basically advocating for themselves or being more assertive in the way they express what they're good at.
1: Yeah, I think it comes down to positioning, actually. Most L&D professionals are positioned as order takers, as content development departments as training departments rather than being kind of development slash performance departments. And it's difficult, right? Because traditionally, I mean, the word is in the title learning and development. There's some expectation that you magically come to our team and we will make people learn. We can't guarantee that we can make people learn. We can create experiences and provide resources to help people learn, but there's no guarantees. But if you just think as an example, like um, I've seen in many companies, they have a training request form. So when a business unit or a business leader comes to that team and they say, right, I want to build training, what's the process? And the L&D person gives them the training request form. It says it in the title. What training do you want? Well, I want training on this. So that conversation has already gone down that path. The team is called the training team. You know, their job title is e-learning developer or instructional designer there's already an expectation there in the eyes of the business leader that that person is going to deliver training. So, you know, if we can position ourselves differently, and if we think about the journey a typical client goes on when they work with us, what is that journey like? What is that experience like? What questions am I being asked? Am I being asked, how many slides is there? Am I being asked, do I prefer e-learning versus classroom training? Am I being asked, How long do you want the e-learning course? That's a classic one. You know, how long do you want this training course to be? Oh, well, 45 minutes sounds about right. Those questions are leading us down the path of building training. So there's an expectation immediately that we go away and build training. But if we start asking questions like, what is the performance problem we would like to improve? Or what behaviors would you like employees to demonstrate after we've delivered our solution? Try and avoid using the word training. When we go down that path and we talk about business problems rather than training problems, the relationship changes because they start seeing us as a business partner rather than an order taker. They start thinking about, wow, this person cares about the business metrics. And we start asking questions that they don't know the answers to. We start asking questions like, what does success look like? If we implement this solution and 12 months down the line, we look back on this, how will you know it's been successful? And when they can't answer that question, and they have to go back to the drawing board and sit carefully and think that through. Then they start getting the answers for themselves and they start thinking, maybe training isn't the solution, actually. Maybe we need to think about something else. And then they come back to you and you've been elevated in their eyes and their perception of you has been increased and you've swerved having to build that course. and Maybe you'll still have to deliver a solution, but it will look very different from the solution they requested. So yeah, hopefully that helps.
0: Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. I um... I find myself agreeing with you consistently. That was actually a very well-rounded conclusion to our conversation. I just want to squeeze one tiny little question in and we'll see if it has merit. Is there any way in which imposter syndrome is useful or productive?
1: hundred percent. Yeah. It goes back to our conversation about awareness, right? Because imposter syndrome really is an indication that you're doing something difficult. I'm stealing this quote from Seth Godin, who talked about this on a podcast I listened to a while ago. And he basically said, imposter syndrome is an indication that you're doing something difficult. And because you're a good person, you're an honest person, you feel like you shouldn't be doing it because you've never done it before. So, you know, who am I to do this thing that's never been done before? Seth's argument was, if you're not experiencing imposter syndrome, you're not working hard enough. You're not pushing the boundaries. If you're just sat in your cubicle pumping out e-learning like I was five or six years ago, I was comfortable. I was in my comfort zone. Yeah, okay. I try different things, like oh, I'm gonna try a, a drag and drop instead of a hotspot, or you know, I was trying, but it you know it wasn't it didn't feel risky. It was like okay, it's within my comfort zone. But now I regularly feel imposter syndrome because it feels like I'm pushing the boundaries of of what I've done before. And so I'm not saying it always feels nice. If you use it as an indication that you're doing something difficult that you've never done before, it's good because it's like, wow, okay, I'm probably doing something that's going to make a difference. Because if I'm just doing the same old thing over and over again, I'm not kind of pushing myself. And I think one way to frame imposter syndrome, which is really helpful, is just think about helping people, right? If you saw somebody drowning, you wouldn't avoid jumping in to save their life because you weren't an Olympic swimmer with X years experience and all your badges that you might get, you know, you would just jump in and save them because you want to help them. So if you think about whether you're working internally or whether you're a freelancer or whether you're, you know, maybe you haven't started in the industry, well, don't think about it as you're not being good enough. Think about these companies need some help, right? They're struggling. They've put an advert on the job site because they need help creating training. They've got some problems in their business. They need some training. That's what their belief is. They need training to help them if I let that imposter syndrome consume me and think, well, you know, I haven't done that qualification and I haven't ever built a learning community before. I'm not going to help you. They just need my help. They just want me to help them. So if I reframe it as, look, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to go and help them. I'm pretty resourceful. I can figure things out. Right. You know, I've made it this far in my life and, The thing I always think about, again, it goes a little bit philosophical, but, you know, I'm a human being. I'm made of tough stuff. I can figure this stuff out. So maybe that's a way to frame it that can be helpful.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time to speak to me today. I'm very grateful and I will have a bit of thinking that I have to do after speaking to you. Thank you for that as well. It's been such a pleasure, Ant, and I appreciate your knowledge. And it's very obvious that you've gone through a process of self-discovery. I think it's so inspiring and so beautiful. If you have any sort of conclusion or anything you'd like to say at the end of the episode.
1: If anybody wants to join me on my journey, I'm I'm writing these emails. Every week I write a short email just sharing what I'm learning and what I'm struggling with and some of the successes and and failures I've had. So feel free to come along with me on the journey with that. That would be great. But um, yeah, thank you so much for hosting me. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been another episode of LD Spotlight. If you'd like to get in touch and join the conversation, write to me at liz at niftylearning.io or connect with me on LinkedIn at Stefan. Have a productive week, everyone!